February 1983, David Cronenberg's Videodrome comes out. Soon after, Jorge Luis Borges puts out one of his last stories, Shakespeare's Memory. I'm your host, Dr. Timothy Wilcox. Join me and my guest, Jeremy Fox, as we experience Double Vision. Welcome to Double Vision. Uh, we're talking about the Videodrome and Shakespeare's memory. Uh, I'm here with, I'm Timothy Wilcox and I'm here with Jeremy Fox. He is a licensed counselor and he uh, has published journal articles on EMDR and trauma therapy. Thanks for having me, Timothy. It's exciting stuff. Um, so that's right, I'm a licensed professional counselor um, done a lot of clinical work with trauma. Uh, I published an article in the International uh, EMDR Journal of Research and Practice, which uh, I did that. It's kind of, I got an idea for it, and then I explored that. We won't go too much off on that, but that's my background, is I'm very passionate about psychology, particularly as applied to trauma and PTSD and how it affects the brain. And so, when we connected and you were looking for, so, so when you were looking for uh, a kind of discussion partner to talk about a movie for, did it start with like horror in 1983? Is that kind of what you were looking for? Remind me of how we started talking about video draw. Um, what well, I, I mentioned, well, I did mention 1983. So I wanted to, I like I had this one idea about talking about Blade Runner and, and William Gibson um, and so, and so that's in the same year. Uh, but yeah, I, I had introduced this idea. My, my, so the concept here is, is look at two works, one film, one literary work from the same moment, you know, within sort of months of each other, these come out and you have these two profound visions, one filmmaker, one literary author, uh, giving sorts of visions in, in the same moment and explore that sort of dynamic, what, what you get out of exploring the, that, that pairing. And so you, I brought that up and, and you, you were immediately very eager to talk about Videodrome, so I'm, I'm happy to have you on. Here to talk Thank about you. Videodrome. Well, and because I remember in kind of the days of like VH1 doing uh, almost watch mojo type lists, but when that didn't exist yet on the internet, so like people might say clickbait, you know, I affectionately, really enjoy clickbait type stuff sometimes but I remember seeing like on a countdown of horror movies on VH1 like the how Videodrome was like the seminal film on um, psychological and physical terror uh, of the television and new technology and so I like had to go watch that and so it very much I was in college at the time and so it really dovetailed with a lot of trauma psychology stuff that I was learning and you know of course the psychology of fear mongering if you anyone who watched the movie will, will get where I'm coming from with that like the fear of television or media infiltrating your brain and in this case in a very literal way transforming you and so I've been a fan of the movie and Cronenberg's work since watching that and of course I watched Scanners and then his other films The Brood is another one that comes from obviously The Fly uh, I can just keep going on and on but this similar theme of like equal parts cerebral horror and physical visceral gore is really Cronenberg's trademark. So he's like, he's one of my favorite directors. Um, but yeah, I was, you're right. I was excited to talk about that because it's a, it's been of course done speaking of Cronenberg on a more literary level, 
but there's always room for more. And I don't have any awareness of anyone pairing it like uh, a fine dish with a, with a wine that's never been paired like you are with Shakespeare's memory. So I'm very excited to explore that. Yeah, so, so, so my background, is, you know, I'm a, I have a PhD in, in English literature uh, and I, I tend to think about things in, in pairings broadly. And, and so this is an opportunity to really sort of think about literature more broadly and, and film more broadly and start to, start to see these interesting moments. And so, so both Cronenberg and, and Corey Lewis Borges, who wrote Shakespeare's Memory, um, you know, they, they both, I think, are, are interested in these like little like thought experiment type works. Um, and the, this Borges story in particular that, that I, I asked you to read, it's one of his last stories that he wrote in 1983 you know a lot of the the stuff that he's really famous for is back in the the 1940s uh it's also you know I interesting as we're thinking about film or particularly this film that's like so much about visual media uh but so Borges you know through throughout his life had, had vision problems um but so he wrote a lot of his uh famous works in the 40s in a sort of state of near blindness and then in the 50s he sort of went completely blind so by the time he's writing this in the, the 80s he's actually been blind for nearly 30 years um and and so you you have this sense of this um highly visual contemporary culture where he talks about that this expectation that the the memories um would be primarily visual. So the, the story is about this guy, he gets access to the memories of William Shakespeare uh, implanted into him sort of magically. And he expects them to be visual. And I think that emerges out of, out of our sort of culture where we think of um, life as, as this primarily visual medium, when really, you know, it, it is a lot of other things. And so he finds auditory sensation to be one of the primary things that comes back to him. He finds these things coming to him in dreams and, and a lot of these, these different sensations and, and blending of, of things. Um, and, and, and then so Videodrome is, is of course, uh, they, they, this guy works for a television station. He's trying to push extreme media and the media starts overtaking his life and body. Right. And so, so could you, um, I mean, so, so you give a bit of an introduction there about, you know, your, your sort of introduction to Videodrome and, and what excites you about it. Can, can you speak a bit about the, um, what, what sort of seems to be Cronenberg's vision with, with the film, like what, what's, what's going on in the film? Oh, 100%. Uh, I, <laughs> I have the, the Blu-ray on the Criterion Collection for anyone out there who's a real cinemaphile, they'll get what that means. You get a lot of bonus content, uh, director and creator sort of um, commentary. So I watched Cronenberg's actual commentary. So I've already seen the movie, obviously. And uh, so what I did to brush up on it was watch it with the commentary on. So I had a really good kind of backseat view of Cronenberg himself discussing it. And he essentially of course spoilers but if you're listening this you probably have already seen it and want to discuss it but the vision is the transformation of technology and 
it's it's almost a cliche now, but it wasn't when certainly when he created the idea that when we use technology, it just as much uses us. So we have Max Wren played by James Woods, right? We have, and so he's the president of a local access television channel called Civic TV. So he discovers this pirate broadcast, this this very edgy titular channel called Videodrome. He tracks it down, right? And at first he thinks it's in Malaysia. He has his tech guy, Harlan, who does all the stuff for the channel, uh, the technical stuff, find the channel, and they find out that's being relayed to Malaysia, but it's really come from Pittsburgh, right? And so a lot of the first half of this movie is James Wood's character, Max Wren, trying to find out more about Videodrome. And then the latter half is him finding it and being transformed, literally, again, because that's much of Cronenberg's oeuvre, is, is his um, sort of very literalist interpretation that when we go looking for something or when we find a new technology or something different, uh, like when, or when we try to modify genes in the fly, right, it transforms us just as much as we try to tap into it. So, of course, for people who've seen the movie, the standout scenes are going to be when Wood starts to hallucinate, starts to get an itch on his stomach, and it, it opens up and he gets essentially a flesh um, opening to play VHS tapes. And that becomes, to, that he starts to become a pawn, first a videodrome, which he's discovered by this point to actually be a plot to get people addicted to violence and the stream and, and actually gives them, it, it induces brain tumors from watching, kills them ultimately. So it weeds out people who enjoy the content. And so there's this moralistic political intrigue and conspiracy behind Videodrome, right? As Masha, one of his contemporaries says, who he tried, who he gets to track down the channel and find out more, she says Videodrome has a philosophy. And it's dangerous because Max doesn't have that. And she tells him, like, you don't have that, Max. Videodrome has a philosophy. Meaning he's looking to peddle the most exciting kind of pornographic material. But Videodrome is looking to actually catch people for doing that, cause essentially an addiction, and kill them off. So by the end of it, uh, one of our protagonists, you know, um, Brian Oblivion's daughter, Bianca, reprograms through Woods, uh, through, through Max Wren, his impulse to work for Videodrome. He's being controlled by VHS. She gets another one, and he goes and tries to, to get to get rid of Videodrome to stop it. He kills the creator, essentially, guy who's got a front that's a uh, glasses emporium, very convex, great last name, obviously, for uh Glasses stuff. I'm kind of going on a tangent. I'm summarizing the plot essentially, but I think the message is once you engage in overt seeking after novelty and media, it begins to propagate through you, right? So essentially, Max goes from very cynical peddler of kind of pornographic content to a essentially first a foot soldier in the video drone machine to then a radical anti-videodrome campaigner. You can almost look at that as if someone who's been addicted to something and then swings the other way, right, consciously. But in this movie, it's a real metaphor for the power of technology either to cause you to, sub to submit to it or to uh, fight against it toward, toward the end. So that's the way I would say the, the message Cornerberg has. Is he actually says, TV Fs you. Like that's his in the commentary, and he's talking about how uh, the character Harlan, when it's revealed that he's working for Videodrome, thrusts the VHS into Max Wren's stomach 
to basically say, here you go, you're working for us. And it's, there's not really a more visceral image of TV violating someone. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's also the, that interview at the, at the, toward the beginning of the movie where he, mm. it's him and Nikki Brand. And then you have the sort of media theorist, uh, Dr. Ob Oblivion. Right. He's there on a television screen. Uh, uh -huh. We later find out that he, he only exists at this point as this giant, archive of vhs tapes right um but but so he, he he um max has two sort of drives going on here one is the the sort of drive for money he explains that they're a small station and so the way that they are trying to break into the television industry is give what you can't get anywhere else and so it creates a spiral of they show extreme content and then it has to get even more and more extreme because it needs to be always new stuff and right. so and so part of it he's having these meetings and there's like various forms of uh softcore pornography and he's like no this is too soft this isn't anything new mm -hmm. uh, and videodrome is this point where it's like no this is exciting this is something that people aren't getting mm -hmm. um but the other thing is is so he wants this woman nikki brand uh he's, he has a sexual desire for her he talks about you know uh, it, during the interview, he starts talking about like, oh, you're, you're a red dress, you know, it's red, it's very stimulating, yes. Freud say, uh, and then there's, there's this sort of, it like, becomes this comic scene where he's like in the background while the, the host is talking to Dr. Oblivion, and he's trying to ask her on a date and all of that, and yeah. she eventually does come <laughs> over, and, and so she's turned on by, uh, by Videodrome, and then, so what sort of drives his quest eventually is that she suggests that she's going off to Pittsburgh to try to get on the show. Right. And so he wants to know more as this sort of salesman. And then he, he also has this concern about her. Um, that's, you know, partly about her safety. He thinks she's going to die or something, but then also um, he has these anxieties where, you know, she wants someone to, to cut her and to, you know, Put cigarettes out on her and all these things that he's selling but that he's actually not quite um comfortable with but but he you know he wants to be he has a sense of jealousy like you let someone else cut you and, and so he, he he has this jealousy where he wants to be that other guy that that she had this more sort of extreme uh encounter with uh and, and and so it, going to Shakespeare's memory, that there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's this other sort of dynamic around desire that, that drives his quest where he's a Shakespeare scholar and gets sort of uh, ambushed at a Shakespeare conference where it's like, oh, I can give you Shakespeare's memory. And it's actually this sort of curse. Um, but, it, but it's about wanting to you know, the whole, even before he gets this offer, his whole life is dedicated to knowing as much as he can about Shakespeare and being this authority publishing on Shakespeare uh, because Shakespeare is already established as this sort of great figure. Uh, and, and so he wants to sort of associate himself into that space and and become, you know, the, the big Shakespeare guy. And then, so this is this, this golden opportunity Sure. Uh, but but in that drive to be 
Shakespeare and to inhabit his mind is sort of, he starts to lose his own um, identity and his own sort of grip on reality. Right. Um, and, and so you, you had, um, you know, so, so you have the, this the psychological background. Right. Your thoughts on what's going on in, in all of those sorts of dynamics and, and yeah. commented uh, a bit about um, memory and how, how that, the story was actually very astute in mm -hmm. describing how that works. Yes. No, I want to go off on that. I've got a lot of notes prepared. I want to, can I follow up on the Nikki Brand thing for a second? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So here's what's interesting upon a reviewing of video drama. And I made sure to linger on the scenes with her at the beginning because I wanted to see how she was introduced. I had this recollection that she was like a psychologist, psychiatrist, therapist, whatever. Um, and, and, and going through watching the movie, it's curious. I don't hear her credentials mentioned, but she clearly has a radio show, right? And it's interesting because at that time, Dr. Laura uh, Schlesinger and Dr. Ruth Westheimer were very big radio personalities who had those medical psychological backgrounds and would give advice. And so that's a real, that is a relic of its time. So Nikki's show is called the Nikki Brand Emotional Rescue Show, which is fascinating because you listen to that and there's like, what is Videodrome getting its viewers from? Titillation and brutality. What is Nikki uh, Brand's show getting their viewers from? Emotional brutality, sort of emotional exploitation, people listening and getting an auditory sort of secondhand enjoyment of listening to, to problems, right? Now, not necessarily enjoyment in the sense of reveling in the other problem, but an enjoyment like fly on the wall listening to another person's uh, inner workings, right? So there's kind of a parallel, not exploitation on Nikki's part, maybe not consciously, um, uh, but we would say a parallel engagement of like getting people's eyes or ears in this case for a radio show listening to painful thoughts and almost a voyeuristic uh listenership on others problems right now of course you could get help on it and that's where that di video where it diverges from that it's like it's not exploitation because you could call and get some help but you have to be willing to bury your entire identity on the radio maybe maybe through uh, anonymity or whatever, but if someone recognizes your voice, how about that for confidentiality? As therapists, we typically don't do that because confidentiality. So Nikki's character is, is fascinating because she's kind of a lampooning, a, a more extreme version of, of course, it's video drama, it's Cronenberg, he takes it to the nth degree, but of these 80s, I'll help you characters. Now, I, th I have nothing rude to say about Dr. Lore, Dr. Ruth. I think they have helped many people, but I think, but, but what's it, Cronenberg uh, himself was saying they were based on, he, he based Nikki sort of on that milieu at that time. And so you look at the, the positive, not positive as in good, but positive as an additive feedback loop between uh, Max and Nikki, and you see that he drags her into, like he, his sexual lust drags her into, like he was asking her in a day, going, like getting her involved in his world. She sees Videodrome. She introduces Max to her world of more S&M stuff, and he's not quite ready, even though he's exploiting that and using it, which says a lot about, right, like getting high on your supply and that kind of thing. Like, he doesn't really understand it. He just shows it. And so they both heighten each other's involvement in video drama. That's something I really picked up on watching the director's commentary and watching just seeing their dynamic of it first. She, and, on the, and on the show, on the public access show, where they're being interviewed, Nikki says the video drama's bad. 
for society. And she admits that she lives in a heightened state of stimulation, doesn't think it's good for people to be exposed to more. So there's a little bit of projection on her part, assuming that other people would, would um, respond the same way she would, which I think, you know, her argument of not showing public torture and utter pornography on television, maybe, maybe, maybe good, right? Like, I think that's a pretty good argument, like not to show video drawn to the public. And later we learn it induces tumors in people. So that's, that's pretty bad too. But it's interesting that her character espouses one thing on the television interview with Oblivion and, and Max. And then she arguably is just as enmeshed in video drawn behind the scenes as Max is, especially when she comes to represent the program and, you know, decapitates Oblivion and, the thing, things of that nature, it's like she's a stand-in for some sort of desire and, and seductress, even though she's more than that in the in the movie, which, which she kind of narrowed represents Max. I don't know why my video is going off there. Um, let me... Oops. So what's, what's interesting, though, is, I mean, there there's the argument that comes up on the TV show, which is this, this really long-standing debate around things like, yeah. does showing violence and stuff on television or whatever right. cause violence? But then the, the film actually shows something more nuanced, which is that, you know, it's, it's, exactly. not even, it's ultimately not even about what you're seeing visually. It's just how that emotionally prepares you for something else to slip, on, slip in on this lower level. Yes, yes, it, it absolutely. The, and we hear later that the tone of the hallucinations is determined by the emotional tone of whatever is shown on Videodrome, right? Whatever. And so that gets into memory. So that's a good jumping off point. So people with PTSD, sounds, things that remind, smell, smell is especially connected to, smell has like a direct route, uh, the olfactory sense to the frontal lobe and to memory. It's a very powerful, like, royal road to memory. People, like, smell is the most powerful sense to evoke memory. That's a big thing to keep in mind. Um, but other senses being this sort of thing that can evoke negative toned memories or positive tones, especially if someone's already in a negative or positive mood state, right, is very crucial to understanding of memory. Like, if someone's in a bad mood, they're probably going to think of more times when they were. And so if someone's whatever that's called, we call it state-dependent memory, right? When someone's in a certain mood state, it determines what kind of memory they subsequently pull up. And so if something induces a negative or insecure emotional state, people are more likely to be suggestible to uh, different narratives about themselves. And quite literally, trauma can change the brain. People's amygdala, their fear center in their brain is expanded, physically bigger, and there's more activity in it. Uh, and people with PTSD. And so what ha the, the amygdala adds emotional tone to memories and it determines how we process emotional memories. And emotional memories are very, very strongly encoded, right? So people will, anyone with a really humiliating memory or traumatic memory can tell you, it's usually stored very vividly. Usually not an issue with, well, I don't remember that. People can dissociate and not remember stuff, but mo much of the time, negative memories are actually more easily recalled. And so we could go down that rabbit trail, but to go to Shakespeare's memory, why I said that it was really accurate the way memory was portrayed is because we know now, and in the 80, you know, 83 is not ancient history. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to say for neuroscience, we've learned a hell of a lot more 
But even then, we were really getting some flavors for what structures in the brain were responsible for memory. So if you think about it, I know it's a magical realism story. I want to start off by saying I'm not one of the uh, well-actually crew that can enjoy a nice tale without cloaking it or dissecting it piece by piece by science. But in this case, it actually really works to go through and look at the science because what we know about memory is that memories are formed. What we, what we speculate strongly, right, I'll say, just like how we speculate psychiatric meds work through releasing neurotransmitters in the synaptic cleft, right? That's a theory. It's a pretty supported hypothesis, but it, it's a hypothesis. So memory is essentially created by neurons together firing and that those synaptic connections strengthen. So there's this Heb, it's Hebbian neuroscience because Heb was the one, Donald Hebb was the one who determined this, the, the kind of axiom that neurons that fire together wire together, right? And so when you look at something, I'm going somewhere with this. So long-term potentiation or repeated firing the same neural networks, strengthen synaptic firing, that's how you have a strong memory, okay? So memories are encoded by modification of synaptic strength. If those synapses are gone or if they're rewired by an oncoming, let's say, magical transportation of memory, like what happens, memory is also evoked, it's recalled, like if you're trying to recall a memory, that your theta brain waves, theta brain waves are active in your hippocampus. The hippocampus tells your frontal lobe, like it actually indexes like a librarian in your frontal lobe where the memories are, and so it will help pull those up. And so if someone has Shakespeare's memories replacing their own, and they see, they smell a rose, right? That's appropriate. That's apropos for Shakespeare, rose by other any other name, right? Or they see something, and their hippocampus goes to find the corresponding memory of theirs, but it pulls up what would have come up in Shakespeare's brain when he smelled a rose or saw something. That's going to be very disorienting, right? And so, as as our narrator said, no one can see a single institute. Excuse me, no one can see in a single instant the plenitude of, the, of his past, nor Shakespeare, nor I, his partial heir. Okay, memory of man is not a sum, it is a disorder of undefined possibility. So what I take that to mean is you have a, a memory cue, your, your hippocampus tries to find where that is and bring it up, and that's how that memory is activated. Memories are in a sense activated, they're not like a one-to-one -one correlation with the DVD, you put it in, it's the same. Um, Elizabeth Loftus, has done some really awesome memory research like in the 80s and 90s where people are highly suggestible. Like if you if you phrase a question, how quickly did the cars crash versus touch, for instance, people who watched a video will give different answers based on how you frame the question. And they've seen the same thing. And so Shakespeare's memory talks about kind of this ephemeral state-dependent, uh, excuse me, trigger or cue-dependent nature of memory. And so, uh, that's where I was coming from. Like I, I took notes on what, him describing memory, like the palaces and caverns of memory. Um, wow. Okay. So there's possibilities there. What this when when our narrator Herman is seeing and, and experiencing things, he sometimes gets his own memory and associations hitting him for these sensations he's having or been linking to memory, and he sometimes gets Shakespeare's, and it becomes increasingly difficult to tear them apart and to extricate it, which would be the case because he's probably just getting some flashbulb memories of things and it becomes difficult to tell what's what. Right, yeah, and, and so he has this scholarly 
assumption where he almost imagines he's going to have Shakespeare's memory like it's a book and he'll just access it. He, right. he, there's the, the reference to like an encyclopedia. But it's yes. actually, it beco he becomes Shakespeare in a sense where um, it's all sort of just embedded in him. And, and so the, um, there's this dynamic going on where um, basically, basically the, this critique of media where yeah. uh, you, so, so going back to this idea that it's, it's not even about the, the visual feed in Videodrome, but that uh, something goes in on this, uh, this other layer uh, and, and so when we were talking about this a bit before, you talked, uh, you had some notes on the, the soundtrack and such, as that's mm -hmm. a big part of what allows certain things to happen, um, is, is so we, ha we have the, these, this system of, of memories and identity and so on that, you know, we think of as, as these various, like, moments and, and, and scenes and such. Right. But, um, but, but actually you have this really gory sort of movie um but but the soundtrack is what enables it to impart certain ideas uh can you talk about that sure so one of the things that when i when i was really first preparing for our discussion here today that that i thought about is just how utterly ridiculous in a positive way a lot of cronenberg's imagery is and how if it, if it veered off one more element of the cinematography or score, you'd have a completely different feel. So the, the, the example I used was you've got a TV that erupts in viscera and blood at the end of the movie, okay? And then you have in, in something like Nightmare on Elm Street, you have when Freddy kills Johnny Depp's character, you have the bed explode in blood. And it almost that almost seems comical in a way. And the movie Nightmare on Elm Street has, even the first one, where Freddy had not been subject to the kind of flanderization or hyper uh, kind of, in, there's a sort of pivot into the most goofy elements of Freddy's personality as the series continues, right? Very kitsch value. Very accelerated into this, this one, like, quipping kind of personality that, that's like, oh, that works, you can get people in the seats. But even in the first movie, there's a little bit of a feel of like a campy slasher film. And my thought is with, with Cronenberg, he avoids that pretty well through his use of music, which was what I was discussing. Like, uh, for me, there's almost kind of a sickening quality to the, in a good way, again, um, of the score by, by Howard Shore uh, and the pacing of the movie. And so you have those things together, like the film really engages in some long form conversations. And even in, in the director's commentary, Cronenberg discusses the fact that, and the commentary I was watching was, was made in 2004. So just imagine if we had like a, a redux, one that was more uh, relevant to now. Because 2004 was like getting ready for Web 2.0. We can go off on that tangent later. But the fact that the music accompanying the movie is very dramatic, which again, I'm Realms has that too. But the, the actual, how seriously these characters take 
the situations and no one is really a caricature. So Max Ren is not like a, and this is what Cronenberg was discussing in the commentary. Max does not stand or champion the, the liberal idea of access to information at all costs as a sort of libertarian or classical liberal uh, moral paragon, right? He's not this champion of rights and free speech. He wants to make money peddling shit, right? Like that's essentially what it is. And so I think that the, the depth of characters, of, com of complex characters, the music, the tone of the film, the undertones you can read into it in the subtext, all kind of are this amalgamation that make the movie less something goofy. Because, I mean, there was a movie about a killer bed that came out in the 80s, Deathbed, it was called. It's like, how did Videodrome not turn into Death TV? Like something that is just so ridiculous it became a too bad, a so bad it's good movie. Well, because of the of elements I mentioned. Now, I like how you're going meta with this and saying, well, how does that impact us as viewers, right? Like the music score, how do we impact by it? Well, I think it, it gains our attention, right? Our brains respond to dramatic sounds, to shifts in tone. And again, the movie, the movie shifts in tone wildly. It, it goes, it, it gets campy at, at parts, but never so much that that becomes the movie. Then you go back to a, a, a discussion at a table with Max and Masha in like a Greek restaurant where they're discussing the finer points of, of media. It's like, so you're never, you're never left in this campy kitsch region for too long. Your brain doesn't adapt to that and peg this movie as that. Right, yeah, and, and so with, um, from Borges, you have, he distinguishes in the story uh, memory, will, and uh, understanding. Yeah. And so he, what the, the scholar Herman Sorgel finds is actually Shakespeare's memory is not very useful to him at all because mm -hmm. it tells him actually very little about how Shakespeare was able to create these plays and these sonnets and so on that, that are so sort of insightful. Uh, it, it does, the memory is, is not the understanding or the will that explains how it is that these sort of trivial occurrences, and, and he finds that actually his own life is on, on a surface level like more interesting and exciting than Shakespeare's was, but, but what Shakespeare had was his ability to transform that into something really quite powerful. Um, and, and so that, that brought me back a bit to something I was thinking about with, with Videodrome, which is that uh, we, we see various forms of TV, not just the, the, the sort of hyper-violent Videodrome, but, um, you know, th there, there's no, like, example within the film of, like, this is what a good TV show or film or something is. Um, the, though, you know, I'm, I'm sure Cronenberg, uh, you know, would himself consider what he was doing sort of quality and valuable in a way. Uh, you had mentioned in your notes, for instance, that this this same year is when Return of the Jedi came out, and and Cronenberg said, you know, he wouldn't direct it because he wanted to to only make things that he had complete control over, uh, and and so you know he he has you know these sort of standards of like what a good highly creative you know media production is. It's not all just critique. You know, this is a bad thing that must be destroyed, but but there are there are those anxieties there. Um, and, and so that, that, that's where I, you know, I think a bit about that sort of meta level where it's like, you know, what separates Videodrome, like Cronenberg's Videodrome from 
Videodrome, the, you know, sort of pirate, supposed pirate broadcast that turns out is actually like a military operation. Um, right. It's a great question. Uh, yeah, he was actually, so here's what's really hilarious about, something that listeners may not know, really, really hilarious about uh, Return of the Jedi. David Lynch was offered the chance to direct it. Now, that would have been wild. And so was Cronenberg. So the two Davids. So they didn't. But, I mean, I have to say, I w wouldn't you love to see what either of them or both of them would concoct for a Star Wars movie? I mean, that would have been amazing. We know Lynch did Dune, which he really, really, really distanced himself from in the ensuing years. Did not like the way that turned out, uh, which, I mean, Dune is just really... A, a difficult to film book. I mean, apparently there's there's a new version of it just waiting on the shelves until theater goers can come back because it was going to come out next month, as you know, probably. But now it's delayed till next year, October. So, but anyway, yeah, the meta element. I mean, I think we can look at that and say, I mean, it's a very good point because for me, it's funny. Um, when I was when I was just getting into the horror genre. Videodrome had this ineffable pull. I saw little clips and I heard people recommend it on TV or online or in, in books. I've got this book that I heavily recommend to everyone, this 500 Essential Cult Movies book. I still have it. I got it from Urban Outfitters. So, uh, and I, I mean, I, I think I'd seen Videodrome since then. Uh, so that was just par for the course seeing it recommended in there. I was like, yeah, it's a good movie, of course. But, um, the, watching the film about people searching out a broadcast, but, but searching that out and being kind of in a hushed tones and being an indie movie, right, for, for years. And it still is, but, I mean, it has a little more notoriety. I think you've got a point there. And it was difficult. So the movie, um, Cronenberg said, was marketed very poorly or, like, as a blockbuster. And so I'm sure – what happened in a few cases is people went to see it and they were expecting a big budget, fast paced swashbuckling sci-fi film. And it isn't that. And it doesn't try to be that, but the marketing department build it as such. So, I mean, it was, it was deemed a commercial flop. I mean, Cronenberg readily admits that. And, and so it did gain an underground cult audience, just like the channel video drum, arguably. Um, but it's fascinating because you're right. In that case, uh, life imitates art. So make a movie about something underground and very ephemeral and ineffable. And, and it's, you have to see it like the, the, the waves of the TV influence your brain. Literally. It's like, Oh, wow. Okay. So that's, uh, <laughs> you got an audience that didn't all connect there and it, and that, that were kind of underground and seeking it out. Right. Uh, but, but then there's also this, um, this sense of, of guilt um, where, so in, in the, the film, you know, he's going and sort of seeking out Videodrome and then he mm -hmm. has this impulsion to sort of share it and, yes. and so on. But, but in the story, right, it's the, the same, there's a similar sort of dynamic where he finds that like the Shakespeare's memory is destroying his life. Yeah, you know, someone else imposed it on him at the Shakespeare conference, uh, and so that the story ends where he's like decides he's got to get rid of it, and he just starts calling up random people until he finds 
you know, some sort of guy that seems like he might be receptive and he's like, hey, do you want Shakespeare's memory? It's, I gotta warn you, it's not good. It's a very somber thing. And the guy is just like, you know, okay, sure. Um, and I, I Why not? It, Why the hell not? Yeah, I found it I sort of comical how quickly that, that exchange goes where it's like, the it makes sense for the narrator to take it, but then on this random person on the telephone, is just so quickly like, that seems interesting. I'll take that, and, oh, yeah, and just sort of, and just just sort of takes that on, and and so it's you know as the story shows, it's this really crippling burden that is like threatening to destroy his sanity in a similar way to video is Like there's this idea that your reality is already half video hallucination. If you're not careful, it's going to become complete video hallucination. Um, and, right. and so it's offloaded right. over the telephone in Borges' story. Uh, and, and so I'm interested in, in that sort of, um, that, that, that impulse where it's like, oh, I'm cursed with this, this understanding and now I need to show, I need an audience for this that will take this away from me. Right. Oh, I'm, yeah, that's a great conversation. And that's one of the first things I noticed about the correlations of the two, the, this two stories, the strongest correlation there really. Um, you've got, I've seen this and you have to as well. And not even explicitly, but, but like, like, like as you aptly put it, and as I had said in the notes, I think the compulsion to share. So Freud spoke about the repetition compulsion or the sort of impulse to do things like repeatedly that happen like to seek out, let's say relationships or situations similar to ones in which you were traumatized, but this time to get it right, to work through it. And so it's a very nuanced topic that I'm not going to boil down, but I will say in many instances, it's we as human beings adapt to what is familiar, not to what is, what is good for us. And so situations that feel familiar feel safe because we know we can account for what's going to happen. And so that's a mouthful. And we will often, we also want people, we want to feel heard. We want people to bear witness to what we've gone through. There's a therapeutic quality to that. And as a therapist, I've got kind of that, uh, you know, there's that, that old adage to a hammer, every problem's a nail. Well, to a therapist, everything's psychological, right? And so uh, when we look at it and we see that Max wants people to see this, so that they believe what is actually on the TV at this time, that's, that's a key element there. Now, we don't know his history. We don't know, which is very interesting because if you think about it, we can infer some things from Debbie Harry's character, Nikki Brand. We can infer that she has a history of sadomasochism because she's very adept at discussing like different topics in it. She has some visible body uh, modification scars, right? So, by the way, Cronenberg named her after the nicks she had on her shoulder, the nicks, and then brand was the cigarette branding her. So that's some trivia there. So uh, she probably has some history of involvement in S and M deeper than I mean, we just talked about that. And and Max is shocked at her burning herself with a cigarette, but to her, this seems just like old hat. This is just this is yesterday's news. She does that all the time for breakfast. So she's interested in this channel on a personal level. And basically like, she wants to go audition for it. It doesn't get much more personal than that. And so she's on this trajectory to ride the novelty of it. And as a clearly, clearly intelligent woman who spends her time doing self-help stuff, there's kind of an emotional and cerebral impulsion there. Whereas um, 
I think Max is, is at first just cerebral, but on an exploitative level where I want to see what I can do with this. Very much kind of boiling it down to whatever feasible financial gain and get from, and of course, like just being interested, then he falls more into that trajectory of experiencing it. But there's an element there of, I've seen something so shocking that I need some validation. And so what came up to me is uh, these, this idea of old internet things like rotten.com where they would have some just awful imagery of different like car crash and things and, and kids in the 2000s like, dude, did you see that? that stuff on rotten, you got to see this, bro. And then seeing people's reactions, right? And so not only getting the satisfaction of kind of pranking them, but also of seeing their reaction to something that you've already seen and judging that and kind of a perverse fellowship there of human emotion, um, that comes to mind. And things like the gauntlet, where you watch disturbing videos and see if you can take it, right? It becomes a litmus test in many ways. And so when we look at Shakespeare's memory uh, equally, we get the kind of like we get our opening character Daniel Thorpe, who's this haggard cynic who's saying, "I can give you this gift, and I, you can you can take it here, Mister Herman Sorgel, scholar of Shakespeare." But I'm going to let you know what comes with it. So this person wants to offload it, and then Herman. I think that Shakespeare's memory is actually a bet, which is interesting to say. But I think Shakespeare's memory is a far better illustration of the way trauma works, of like an abuser then thinking that it's okay to do certain stuff to someone else and abusing them a sort of one-to-one uh, -one correlation there of someone inflicting something and someone else inflicting that and a loss of innocence almost than even video drama, which is interesting because there's less gore. And so there's no gore. It's a story about Shakespeare's memory for God's sake, but you get this idea and it's, and it's more like infiltrating your brain on a level where you're not having, you don't even know what solution is and what's not, which also as you very capably pointed out, what is the case in video drama, right? So with Shakespeare's memory, what I noticed there is the kind of tragedy that the, the narrator, his neural networks are wired to analyze and pick things apart. And so his memory, his, his executive process of the brain, we could say executive functioning is actually a, a, a function of the brain. It's something that happens in the frontal lobe. And so he correlates and analyzes things, right? But Shakespeare's memory, Shakespeare, excuse me, Shakespeare's so what, what the narrator got is like Shakespeare's episodic memory, right? He didn't get Shakespeare's uh, capacity to link ideas, Shakespeare's creativity. It's like the monkey's paw or something where it's like you, you wish for something and you should have said one word different to get a different thing. Like wish for Shakespeare's creativity. You could write sonnets about co pouring concrete, right? Like you, could, you need his capacity to link unrelated ideas, the faculty of creativity and production. You don't need his raw memory of some flowers in England, right? Like that's not the thing that's going to give you that power to write. And so our narrator finds that out and he just actually starts losing his own memories to Shakespeare's. And that's what he got out of it, worse than if he hadn't had it. And so that, that was an interesting point that I brought away from it is the memories he got were just things that, would, that he would bring up if, if something would have reminded Shakespeare of a time. It wasn't proactive. It was all reactive recollection triggered by imagery. And you see this in Borges' stories. You see this almost, well, I'm not gonna say almost, this obsession with memory. You see it in his, his story about someone writing Don Quixote from memory, right? You see it in a story that he does about called The God's Script, which I heavily recommend, where 
someone tries to analyze, someone, someone actually keeps their sanity in prison, in a, as tech or my in prison, by reciting their memory of events and indexing it because they're so lonely. It's like his obsession with memory was so thorough. Anyway, that's a lot to dump, so I would, you can react, but I thought I would throw that stuff out there. Right, yeah, there, there, there's actually a, an interesting companion story, uh, Funes the Memorious, uh, where, where it's about someone who, this is by, also by Borges, uh, but it's, it's someone who he, he hits his head, and so he gets two abilities. One is this, like, absolute perception, where, like, he takes in all details of all things in his visual range at all times. Yeah, and and then and he also he never he cannot re- forget anything ever. Mm-hmm. He remembers everything perfectly, and and, and he he it's and it's this interesting thought experiment of like what how you would understand the world when that's possible. And he right, and so he becomes obsessed with this idea of like, what if I just replace all numbers with like my own system, and so like five hundred and thirty will be nine. And 532 will be school bus, and and, and so the the narrator is like, "What are you talking about? That doesn't make, make sense. That makes things way harder." And it, it just, but yeah. he he can remember this whole insane system so perfectly well. He right. doesn't understand why that wouldn't be like a better system. Yeah, um, because because <laughs> each of those words is so much more distinct than just saying one, two, and various different variations. Um, but but so in Shakespeare's memory. Uh, there, there's a vision that's sort of similar to in, in Videodrome, but the way in which um, the, this, this sort of added reality offered out through media uh, is so it, it, in ex- you cannot you sort of cannot get it outside of it. You know, this, this idea that your reality is already half video hallucination. There's yeah. no sense in which uh, Max can make his reality less than half video hallucination. That's just already baked in. Right. And, and in the same way, um, the, the, supposedly in Borges' story, the, the, the idea is that once you give away the memory, it's supposed to just be gone. But what he finds in the end is he's still seeing these things in his dreams that he's pretty sure is Shakespeare dreaming. And, right. and so you, there's the idea, it comes up uh, of Thomas de Quincey's idea of the brain as a palimpsest where you have these paper documents where uh, text is sort of chemically erased and written over, but all of those layers are still there and can be brought back up through sort of a chemical means. Right. And, and so right. the, the, all of that is, is always there. And, and so to, to your point of trauma is, is this interesting moment where by virtue of having something like the telephone, you, you introduce this possibility that someone can just call you and like speak to you for like a minute and just right. like drop something on you that like, even if you don't really remember that conversation very well, you don't like, you've never seen this person's face, it just implanted there. And now that's like part of who you are and you can't right. get away from that. Oh yeah. And, and so there, there's this um, dynamic in which, uh, you know, the, the media is, is changing you. And, and so what's, really interesting in in Cronenberg's vision, because he's working in a a visual medium, is it becomes this this visual change done through these sorts of like interesting looking, you know, practical effects 
of like the, the, the body horror element where it's not just that there's something emanating from the television. It's that the, the television becomes this like veiny bulging mass and right. it, the screen bites him. And then his, his body is, is morphing. He develops the, the sl slot you mentioned and yeah. his, his hand turns into the gun and all of that. Um, and so, and so, as Cronenberg envisions it, it's 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 this real body horror where it changes. Uh, you know, it's the, the idea of um, you know, death to video drone, long live the new flesh. Right. Uh, and so, even as he goes off to try to defeat Videodrome at the end, supposedly, mm -hmm. uh, he's he's permanently altered within this new mediated reality that physically alters his, his body. Um, and, and, and so, so Borges, you know, it, it is interesting where it's, it's, it has this fantastical layer where it's just a sort of magic spell of transferring the memory. Um, and I, I, I did think of, there was an interesting line where it seemed almost, uh, like a computer upload where it's like, it's somehow it like all of a sudden it's like actually not this instantaneous transfer, but it's like, oh, it'll take time for it to go from me to you and as if it's like uploading you know, file. yeah, like um, a wire in the past or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 so the, um, but it it uh, it completely changes the narrator even after he he offloads it. There there's still this lingering uh, difference that's there. Well, let's get really wild with that because that's also one of the things I pointed at that when I put like uh, that brief thing in my notes of this is very similar to the way memory actually works or very associatively it's like so let's say that someone were to get some alien memory and it's uh from from another source and it, it kind of comes and colonizes your own networks um okay uh and it's it wires together synapses that you didn't already have wired together right and so you have additional memories because when we remember new things it's not like we forget old things necessarily at all so let's kind of say well Maybe it wouldn't be catastrophic if you uploaded someone else's memory into yours and it would just connect new neurons, okay? We can say that. Uh, but then what happens when you remember their memory with your brain? You've just created that neural network in your own brain in a different spot that even if you erase the copy, even if you erase the original, you've got the copy in your brain. So you can't just delete. If you upload someone else's memories and you think about them, you're thinking about the memory. You've laid down a new memory. You can't erase that you'd have to erase your whole brain at some point, probably. That's because memory is very messy. And it isn't just, we don't have these little file cabinets mentally in our brain. Our brain is not a DVD shelf. Essentially, it would be more, this is where Cronenberg-esque stuff comes in because it, it kind of bleed through a physical and uh, ephemeral comes into play here where memories blend into each other they affect one another. There's a lot of instances of, of, of like memory issues where someone thinks something, someone believes something really happened and it's because they watched it on TV at a young age and they thought it happened to them later as an adult because the memory was so fragmented. So if you were to really take on someone else's memory, there is a great chance that even when you offloaded the original memories that you would have these weird spectral sort of invasions that 
are echoes of the memory, but that are, are, are echoes because you copied them and you still have a copy of that in your brain. You have the copy of the original memory. So that's also what I found fascinating and kind of some real world stuff there is like when people have repeated, when people have a traumatic event happen and they encode it and then they think about it, they get afraid of that fear inducing memory. And then that fear element builds to where then the memory is more imposing than the event even was. And that's a mouthful for something very traumatic. So there's a sort of meta memory element here where that when we think about trauma, we, we often think about the worst of the worst, which is fine. We need to realize how bad those things are. But varying levels of trauma. I would argue that anything that causes you to have involuntary negative memories of it is essentially a traumatic event. Now, whether you want to say that's a lower T, lowercase t trauma, which in my therapy of choice, EMDR, that I do with clients, which by the way is based on eye movement. So that's a whole thing. Like in Videodrome, uh, this, this idea, Oblivion spelled out basically the map to how Videodrome works, which makes sense considering he invented it and it was used in a rogue way. But you've got this idea of the mind's, uh, the, the TV being the new retina, right, of the mind's eye, and then the eye being the window of the soul later and the, the, in the, uh, the eyeglass company, them using that as the, the mediate, excuse me, the, I'm talking about mediated persona here. I'm going through my notes. Um, okay. So spectacular optical talks about how uh, the eyes, the window of the soul, and Oblivion says that the TVs become the retina of the mind's eye. And so you've got this, that builds the bridge that what you're looking at through the TV directly impacts your soul. And so, in other words, we could go secular and say memory, right? Like I'm, I'm Christian, I believe in a soul, but also you could say that there's memory here. And so when our, our, when our good friend Max watches Videodrome, it infiltrates through the TV, through, hit, through Max's eyes, changes him on a fundamental level, there's no going back from. Right, so so Cronenberg has pretty explicitly laid these breadcrumbs out here. Um, maybe explicitly, if you've watched more than once and catch that, right? I'll I'll say that. But so that's very interesting to me. Is it, it Videodrome is a memory essentially? It forms a memory that then colonizes your brain in a physical way, based on negative imagery. Negative imagery is very potent. It does create a, a stronger reaction, which creates a stronger memory. Right, so you've come back to that point repeatedly that video drone, it's a signal that physical changes ride in on. Well, to be honest, if something were going to do that, it would need to be probably pretty emotionally charged. So that's par for the course that it's so horrifying because horrifying things tend to be memorable. Yeah. We have to survive. We have to realize. Yeah. Well, there's a key moment that like completely like makes the, the sort of, whatever is like the service level reality of the plot impossible to follow where it's like they put the this helmet on him and we're like we're going to record one of your hallucinations and so they never show them like actually taking that off and so there's no like objective point of like when does that hallucination end but then it also blurs as you're describing this idea of what is this like machine induced hallucination versus what is just well he's seen video drone before and now his memory of it is overtaking his reality. Uh, and that, that becomes a sort of same thing, you know, impossible to sort of differentiate. Uh, and there's also a, an interesting thing with the, with the Borges story where um, 
we see how our, our thinking shapes our ability to live in certain sort of technological societies where uh, the, there's a moment where Shakespeare's sort of uh, thoughts are overtaking his own and he's becoming more Shakespeare than uh, Herman. And right, and and, and so he's more machine than man now, right? And 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 but all of a sudden he doesn't he like forgets what a train is, uh, because it, Shakespeare uh -huh. wouldn't have recognized it, and so there's this train that's speeding past him, and there's all sorts of metal and glass, and it's going fast, and it's making all this noise, and it's like he's like losing his mind a bit, um, which reminded me also of the beginning, the parable. This is introduced is. There's giving away Shakespeare's memory, but it's like this, this old fable of a ring that allows you to hear what birds are saying. And the guy yeah. is like, it's some guy probably has it who's, he lives somewhere where there's no birds. And, 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 and Herman Sorgel is like, or maybe he lives somewhere where there's so many birds, it's all just noise and he can't even like notice that the birds are saying things. Um, which is actually a, a, something that happens at the... Um, early on in, in, in scanners is the, the guy can read lines but but when there's so many you just can't even like actually pick out thoughts um but right but um so, so he can't recognize the train and then you have the introduction at the end of the telephone as this disrupting thing where, where you're passing on the, this this magical memory you know at first it's person to person you know directly like in in the flesh but then the phone allows you to just like dump these things on strangers at this remote distance yeah. sort of randomly and, right. and and so now this 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 disrupts things in an interesting way which which actually i think goes back to an interesting point you were saying very early on about this introduction of radio based therapy where it's like you you get the help, but in order to do it, you have to broadcast all of your sort of deep personal thoughts onto public radio. Oh yeah, um, just that, just that little minor detail. Yeah, uh, and and so and so that, that that's that's this sort of interesting point uh, to maybe lead into. Uh, you you had some thoughts about these sorts of crafting of uh, these sorts of personae. Um, what, what, so what was, what was your point with, with that um, about the crafting of, of, of a sort of persona and, and, and then how we, how we sort of do that now? Oh, yeah. Um, that's a great question. So, boy, I have some points on that. And uh, one thing I would say is to go back to the power of the phone versus the, the TV with Videodrome, um, it's very interesting to consider the psychosexual perversions that accompany the phone so back in the day you'd hear about like i mean back in the day it's not ancient history the scream movies the killer makes inappropriate phone calls which is kind of a riff on it's like i'm calling within the house it's like very fear inducing and terrorizing and that's something like people calling and you hearing heavy breathing on the other end of the phone someone knowing they're making you talk typically uh, someone who has some very um, exhibitionist uh, antisocial tendencies, right? We could say calling a woman or, or someone and hearing their fear 
making someone respond to you, making someone acknowledge your efforts at doing something to them, right? Your causality as a causative agent that came with phone calls, right? With, with, with the phone, the ability for someone not to see your face and for you to be able to do that. And so we, we see that in uh, the Shakespeare's uh, memory story. The phone is also used as an agent of kind of terror, but on a level where it's a more professional thing of you, you, you can have this, you know, you're not, you're, there's no way you're going to know what it is. If I tell you it comes with risks and it will kind of colonize your personality, you're not going to know that fully until you experience it because it's not something like, you know, people having a memory growing up of stubbing their toe and being like, it's going to feel like that. There's probably nothing that feels like having your memory taken over and subsumed by Shakespeare's, uh, arguably, unless it's dementia or something like that. So it's interesting, like the phone was used as a more informed way, like even getting someone's consent to give them the memory. It's a consent based on the fact that they're trusting that they can handle it, which we know no one can. And so the, the, the issue of consent is something someone could really tear apart in Shakespeare's memory. But anyway, back to this, this idea, because I really want to get into this. So it, the character Brian Oblivion is so pivotal to the video drum movie for many reasons. But one of them that's the dearest to me is his espousal of the fact that we'll all have television names or special names that cause the cathode ray, the TV, to react, right? To, so to, to respond in some way to uh, get our actual point across, to, to resonate, right? And so that's the word used, resonate. And so, you know, I, you can ponder that. And so this movie was released at a time when Gen Xers were, were, were younger. The yuppies, the people, the children of the, of the 80s that were growing up then, a generation after the boomers, right? So people need to get that straight because Gen X is not, is, are not boomers and, and, and vice versa, right? Gen X is that generation that was in the movie Slackers by Richard Linklater. So, um, just to get that out there. So Gen X though, which was being spoken to in Videodrome at that time, did not have TV names. That didn't come to pass, okay? Um, but it did come to pass for their offspring, the millennials, especially the early, the, the millennials, the older, older ones now, who grew up in a time with AOL Instant Messenger, where you craft a TV name that resonates, an internet name that resonates. You craft something like, uh, Marilyn Manson fan 6969. It's like, ooh, that's got some edge to it. That makes the internet resonate. It's like, oh, okay. So now we're seeing Cronenberg's works come to pass in 2003 or so, right? Uh, 20 years later. And so that's why, I mean, people talk about how prophetic and prescient the movie was. And I think there's no way to overstate that, quite honestly, because the fact that you just substitute internet for TV it's really powerful. And the fact that Oblivion has these two-way conversations as a TV screen, uh, that's Zoom. We're doing that now. So anyone can cultivate a sort of mediated personality and anyone can cultivate this parasocial uh, one-way contact that even feels like it's two-way. So the, uh, Quentin Reviews is a YouTuber who was doing a video about Blue's Clues and how when he was growing up, he really felt like Steve was talking to him, right? And so we have that being done on kids and Steve himself, Stephen Burns, actor that played Steve on Blue's Clues, was very, very anxious about that. He was very responsible. He was thinking, I'm talking to these kids, and they believe I'm talking to them. How ethical is this? Even if it's about birds and, and the handy-dandy notebook and clues, right? 
It's like, what is this? Is this, is this an okay form of communication? And so we see Nikki as a version of that and Oblivion. They're both. People might not put that together immediately because Brian Oblivion is so very scholarly and very, uh, we could say, almost like dictatorial and has this quintessential, very academic energy, almost an elitist masculinity about him, especially from his very, like his uh, ornate wooden chair, which we discover the amazing immaculate office at the cathode ray mission that his daughter, has, Bianca, is, is, is using. Um, but, but when we see Nikki has a much softer version of that where she's speaking to her audience on a, on a one-to-one level. And so she's become this personality. You can hear her authority, actually, in the one scene. I, man, I wish they had deleted scenes where she had that radio show and did more of those calls because that could really give us an idea of how she speaks from her authority because she's very authoritative with her listener who's crying. And, and Nikki says, I've got your number, haven't I? AKA in the 80s that speak for, I, I know what you're saying, right? I've got you read. I know what you're, what you're talking about and I've pegged you. As you can hear, she's actually pretty assertive. And she's not always that way. And the whole S&M thing and switching is all about like being dominant and submissive at different times. So you get a lot of Debbie Harry's character, Nikki, being submissive in the movie in some ways, although it's a very sort of bold submissiveness, which is not too much of a misnomer or too much of a contradiction for S&M culture. That's par for the course. But you kind of, you can kind of get that flavor. Like she may be submissive, but she's very articulate and very, very much communicating her truth but she she's not submissive at all even in the slightest on her radio show you could even say she's almost a bit gruff right so what does that say about these mediated personae well the sort of parasocial relationship of these personalities effect of these personalities is i have this knowledge come and drink from this source it can be two-way but a lot of the time it's one way and people are imbibing it and your tv name becomes who you are and so it's like Flandersation, again, that term that comes from The Simpsons, where Ned Flanders becomes essentially an archetype. When you become defined as an archetype, that's, that's it. Like, that's your, like, almost if you become defined by Shakespeare, right, by his memory, you become this thing in a box, and people look to you that way. Does that kind of answer it? Yeah, I mean, also, you, there's an interesting thing with the, so it's, it's uh, Le, Le Memoria de Shakespeare, uh, which, you know, I think there, there's actually like a, a double meaning there where it's like Shakespeare's memory is a thing he gets, you know, the memory that belonged to Shakespeare, but then also broadly the, the memory of Shakespeare that sort of permeates our sort of culture and the history of literature and such, right, is something that he's already sort of obsessed with, uh, which is something I thought about a bit when you were talking about like, you know, someone makes this AOL name like Marilyn Manson 6969, uh, you know, you're, you're, situating yourself in relationship to this other person's other identity is already something we do culturally yeah. even if you don't get like the actual memory uploaded into you uh and, and right. so the, the the interesting thing that to me with with oblivion is his idea that you know he he'll sort of die off but he'll continue on as this archive of of tapes uh, and then that that's actually more real than than his 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 supposed reality of being alive, um, you know, similar to to what what uh, Her Herman Sorgel finds is that Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's memory, memory is uh -huh. less real than you know this this actual archive of like Shakespeare's literary writing, 
it creates this Shakespeare that someone making like, you know, the, the AOL name, like Shakespeare 90, you know, is it, yeah, understanding. Absolutely. Right? Um, Fandoms. Right, right. And, and, and so there's this, this, you know, this way in which you see through Oblivion as a sort of pioneering media scholar that we, we, we're not just consuming media, but that it trains us to then also create media. And we start to create ourselves as these media persona, uh, and, and which has become, you know, much more thoroughly realized through, you know, sort of computers and social media and stuff where you can really create these sort of very elaborate, you know, things and you can put it out there to this like global audience uh, but but you oh, already you already have those sorts of dynamics with you know videodrome and the telephone and, and such. Right, and so tell me about your familiarity with the kind of mediated persona, because the only references I see to those are some some academic articles. Where do you get that term from? Um. Oh, I. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll. No, it's a very a good term. I'm right. just curious. Yeah. Um, I don't know. A lot of things. Uh, I think uh, N. Catherine Hales is uh, one of the sort of big mm. scholars. I think about a lot. Talks about um, things. She has, she has a book. Uh, for instance, My Mother Was a Computer. Uh, talks about uh -huh. things like that. You know, that, that, we, that we, you know, we sort of inherit those, those sorts of things. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but yes. Yeah, so so there, there's, but th that that there's that whole uh, medium, and it's interesting. There's, uh, you know, these sorts of stages to it, uh, where where certain things like they start to seem sort of outdated, as you know, in the theory world, th things start to seem sort of outdated, decade by decade, where it's like mm. something based around just you know, 90s television or something, all of a sudden now we have, you know, smartphones and all the social media and stuff. And it's like, it doesn't quite capture the, the richness of it, even what was sort of existing back then that we didn't really quite recognize. But what, but you, what you get out of these creative works, whether it's film or literature, is the, these sorts of really deeply penetrating, lasting visions, uh, which, which is sort of part of the, the, the core idea of this is going back and seeing, you know, what is the vision in 1983 of, uh, you know, Borges and of Cronenberg and, and, and that gives you something really interesting. And as you were saying, the, you know, Cronenberg's vision is, is deeply prophetic. And, you know, so while we'll, we'll still, you know, read and study stuff like Marshall McLuhan's, uh, you know, theories about media, there's right. also then, you know, critiques of that very like, you know, correction of this and, and competing theories and all of that. Right. There, there's not really in the same sense, like a competing theory of Cronenberg. It's, it's this creative vision. And, and so we can look at Borges vision as well, but it's, it doesn't, it's not, it's not about being who's, who's the correct scholar. It's right. It, it they, sort of overlap and give, you know, the sort of double vision into this sort of moment that I think is quite interesting.
Yeah, I like that. I like that you're calling your your podcast here this Project Double Vision. Um, the phone. Well, I think the big the big difference is for for video drone, the video is the like technology is the movie. That's what it's about. For Shakespeare's memory, the telephone is at first glance and, and sort of in the story kind of secondary. So it's the vehicle through which the vehicle of Shakespeare, his memory is shared. So I think it's really good for us to analyze the, the telephone as the element by which that happens. Because in per, it happens in person too, the dude accepts the memory. It's like a vampire, you, you have to invite them into your house, right? Like I just now thought of that. Like the, it, the way Shakespeare's memory works, there's a lore there, albeit for like the eight page story. So it's not a rich lore, but it seems to kind of feed off of that classical idea of there was at least a choice at some element for you to let this monster into your house, either the monster of depersonalization via someone else's memories or a literal vampire. So, and for one thing, Boris's stories are very rich and have a diversity of themes. Cronenberg's oeuvre is very rich as well. I think his themes are a little more closely configured where you have more data points and they're tighter together and you can triangulate more. So, okay, the impact of technology or external forces on the body, right? That becomes a, a clear theme because it's borne out in several movies. And with, with uh, Borges' work, it, it's eclectic. And those ide the ideas of knowledge, memory, identity are borne out in, in ways that are maybe a little a little wilder all over the place because short story, I mean, because he, he was a very prolific author and of course Cronenberg's prolific director and, and filmmaker, but he's got fewer movies than Borges has stories, right? So there's, it's a tighter corpus of work from which to analyze, I would say, when it comes to Cronenberg. Uh, that's why there's not as many competing theories is because I think people have pretty well figured out what's being said now, what they haven't done is, is tied it to a lot of other phenomena that you can always tie it to, but like what I'm doing with kind of, and I'm sure someone's done it like with the, the, the early 2000s screen name culture, um, and I think one of the bigger things to keep in mind with that is just the, the fact that the name, like if you look at it now, I was thinking about this, you get, he, he was right for a period of time, he still is, but Okay, so follow me on this. So screen names were really big in the early 2000s. Why is that? Well, it's like there wasn't a lot of video on AOL or anything like that. Uh, there was um, a, like you just spoke, and I think there were voice messages. So what does that lead more to? Anonymity. What does that lead more to? People deciding who they are. Now, if you look at a lot of TikTok stars now, like which is the emerging, it's, it's newer than you, new, yeah, it's newer than YouTube. It's newer than anything else online, really. TikTok stars like Charlie and Dixie D'Amelio often go by their real names. Why is that, do you think? I would say it's because no anonymity. You want the fame. You don't want an alt personality, right? You want it known that this is you. And so for a while, like, hold on a second. Sorry, my dog's scratching me. Um, yeah, so, but there's something I think glamorous about this idea of um, that that's that's inherited from this long history of film and TV culture. But there's something 
that we we sort of just intuit as glamorous about like a a name being a celebrity name right. that we haven't quite learned about like you know that there there are certain people who are like really famous as as screen names or usernames right. or whatever but yeah. but I, I don't think that's that has quite permeated culturally yet so yeah i think that so you're saying culturally everyone doesn't use a screen name because they just haven't been exposed to it or found out that it's something they want to do yeah i, th I think um that 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 will uh expand more and more that this because i mean another theorist i, I thought about uh, as you're talking is um sherry turkle ah. uh, you know uh there's um these are really, you know, really dynamics where we learn to have these, you know, sort of second lives on on the on the screen, right? Um, and and it's this interesting creative act that you know also then obscures how real it is to sort of shape ourselves in this way, right? Uh, but but I think you know over time, you know, we're already at a point where people are identifying themselves more and more with these sort of uh, media constructions. I think the, the, the name is, is definitely something that will sort of, uh, at least in that sort of space, fade away where, you know, you, you have, you know, a hundred years of named like film stars that are the sort of like, or music stars that are like these sorts of foundational uh, cultural images. But, you know, as more and more people sort of make big on, you know, the sorts of like username, brand name type things, I think people will, will, you know, inevitably more people will follow those models and will sort of go off into that direction. And, and that's, that's, I think in some ways, you know, it seems like this digital construction, but that's also a part of what I think Cronenberg is imagining with this idea of the new flesh. It's like that becomes you. And, and to bring it back to the, the phone, so you had the, these these notes about how the, in, in answering the phone, even before he gets the offer of Shakespeare's memory, in answering right. the phone, there's this acceptance of this, uh, you're agreeing to speak to someone. Yes. Innately. And, yeah. and there's this wider dynamic where uh, as we get more and more mobile technology, you know, people will go out into a public space and have this the private conversations on their cell phones. Yes, and and we grow to accept that. Uh, I, I I have a a very uh, this sort of media moment that I love from the finale of Seinfeld, where it's like the he, Jerry Seinfeld says the cell phone walk and talk is the lowest form of communication. And yeah. and this is this sticks out to me every time I, I see the episode of like just how dated that is. Where you know now it's 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 so much more than that. Like almost sort of unquantifiably more than than cell phone walk and talk being normalized. Oh yes, I mean, look, you see, it's it's like yes, that's outdated. But it's outdated because everybody got the memo. Like, why is it outdated? Well, because collectively as a society, implicitly really, without like a formal declaration, like there are with laws of theft and murder and things like that, you know, we society declared 
we're just going to do this now. Like, we're just going to walk around and talk. And that you have to imagine, like, the first 100 people to do that, and then the first 1,000, and then the first 10,000, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be interesting to consider, right? Because I've never considered that before, the idea of early adopters of the cell phone walk and talk. But there had to have been, statistically, people who were the first to do that. And what they were, they were probably engaged in business, I would think, or something because they already have a cell phone. And so they're probably upwardly financially mobile. They need it probably for work because that's a tax write-off potentially. And so again, that lends to that point. Um, and so you'd see people walking around that and the pioneers, and then there's like, Oh, okay, well, that's just normal. Like we can, and why does that become normal? Because there's no altercation or divergence from that or seeming sort of um, counterpoint or, social shaming now in restaurants if you're speaking really loudly on the phone people will look at you because you're interfering with their direct experience but public walkways and in public outside spaces are now considered basically an extension of our own egos and we just happen to collect there right an extension of our own private worlds and so i can't take full credit because i was watching a salon called the digital unconscious and video drama beyond and one of the uh, Janine Mark March assault and probably brutalizing her name was saying that there's a privatization of the public sphere. Right. And so she was linking that to idea like video drone being that like going out on public airways or whatever. But Zizek said that, that there was a privatization of the public sphere. And so essentially like this goes to, the phone, to go back to your point that I'm, to go back to your point about my point in my notes, I had that the phone is essentially a modernist contract machine, either explicitly or implicitly. When you pick up the phone implicitly, you're consenting to conversation. Now that gets very wavy because you're not consenting to who it is. And if you have some really nasty figure threatening you or sexually harassing you, especially as a woman, you're not consenting to that, right? You're not, you're not at all. And so it means well, so what, what did we do after the fact? Now, technology caught up, and now we can look and have caller ID. And so when you see someone's name, you're really consenting to who that is. But if they're even a friend or someone who's yelling at you and you discover, like, you didn't consent to that, you consent to talk to that person. But nevertheless, you are giving a sort of approval, like, I'm going to pick this up and talk to this person, I'm giving my permission, right? But it's softer than, like, this person's at my door, I'm going to let them in. So what's happened is we have more and more implicit consent constantly being developed by technology. It's like all of this is in effect more like things get more and more nebulous where first someone had to come to your home and you can say, I can't, I can't let you in right now or I'm, I'm sick or I can't do this. I can't do that. Like hypothetically speaking, right? It's like for whatever reason, like then it becomes the phone call. Well, you can uh, kind of avoid a phone call or you can let it go to the answer machine. You can text someone, Hey, I can't talk right now. So then now we have internet ads, right? You get an ad blocker. But to a certain extent, if you're watching something, you're consenting now to ads for products being piped into your eyes. And so, like, I think it's important for us to realize what we're consenting to by picking something up, watching the screen, whatever, and have a proactive stance on that. Because we're kind of trained into having a more reactive, passive stance. Right, yeah. And, and so there, there's this, in this um, hyperconnected context, there's this dynamic where it's like, even if you don't agree to pick up the phone, right, there's messages that are transmitting either directly to you or just like to public spaces 
you know, right. on social media. And so people, someone can be talking like on your public Facebook wall up oh, to yeah. you, or they could be talking about you wherever and, and all these things. Right. And so that's, that's just out there. Um, and, and so an interesting thing is, is you mentioned uh, this idea that actually you got from watching this video, which actually the person there got from Slavoj uh, yeah. Zizek, right? And so this, this is the way in which, you know, what, what's talked about in the story in, the, in the, the film where these ideas come in and then they, they enter into our minds and, they, they, and then that just sort of, it builds up and becomes who we are, what we think and such. Um, and, and, oh, yeah. so, and so the, the on, on some level that, that seems very banal, like, you know, of course, if you hear something, you'll, you'll remember it and you'll think about it. And it's part mm -hmm. of how you, how you understand things. Right. But, but the, what you get, um, what you can get is, is something much more insidious where it, it, it's made with these sort of deeper sort of psychological understandings. And, and so you can hear, you know, a thousand things a day, you know, there, there's the, the, the parable in the Borges story about, you have the ring and you can hear the language of birds, but if there's just birds everywhere, it's, you know, you're not actually going to think about it or hear the birds, but if someone can sort of interject and be like, actually, it's, it's actually just this one stream. It's Shakespeare's memory. It's this thing that uh, you have been made to really want. And now you, I'm going to put this in, into you. Um, that, that's something that, that really sort of resonates and, and just sort of sticks with you, uh, similar to how separately, you know, the language offered through Shakespeare's plays already resonates with this, this narrator who understands things via the sort of languages and metaphors of Shakespeare that, sh you know, shapes how we right. understand things like jealousy and, and so on. Yeah. Well, I just thought of this. What if the narrator was hasty and he gave up the memory? Like Shakespeare, we don't know how I don't, as a scholar of, Eng of English literature, you may know this, but I don't know at what age Shakespeare wrote his first play. And so without that information, like here's, I'm, I'm guessing he probably got started writing pretty, pretty well, like cutting his teeth and, and really developing his chops as a writer in his mid to late teens, in his 20s, in his 30s. Like, I'm guessing that there was a lifetime of accumulation of things and that he started cognitively getting a lot better at simile, metaphor, metimony, whatever, uh, all these different elements of um, literary perfection and construction. And our narrator, what, had this memory for, I know, I think a few years in that story, but was that enough to totally shape the way that he, I mean, he, we, we see little vignettes of it. We see cracks in the wall of his psyche where Shakespeare's capacity for metaphor may have been, been emerging in him, but he might not have, he might have developed it in time. He might have developed the capacity to put things together, but he wasn't, for he he wasn't interested in, in losing himself quite literally to do so, which I think is 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 a good point because to write as Shakespeare 
would not be to write as yourself at all and you wouldn't be able to take the credit. And so this idea of, well, I want this, I want this from an egotistical level, but if you have to transform to someone else, you're not doing it on your own. If, unless it's transforming into a better version of you that still has some modicum of your own creative enterprises and faculties at play, right? So that's a good, a good point there I, I kind of considered. Uh, and yes, like quoting uh, something that's quoting Zizek, it's like that the, the rabbit trail there is as deep as it goes. We have that ability now with the internet, but what does it often go to? Well, and, and I've done this before too. I'm not passing judgment. Watching a bunch of videos on YouTube so Videodrome didn't have an algorithm. It didn't adjust its programming dynamically based upon what you just watched or, or to tell you what it thinks you should watch. So it's interesting. A movie now would probably factor heavily in something to do with an algorithm, something that was predictive and, and machine le learning enabled that showed you the kind of violence or violation that, you, that your psyche wanted. And so like, that's a very negative element of technology now is the more passive it, it trains our, our viewers to be, it's like, oh, let me autoplay this for you. And it's going to be related to this last video that you clicked on, because if you like that, you'll love this. So there's an element there where Videodrome's sleazy capacity to just predict general indulgence in violence and sexuality has now been kind of even outperformed by outlets capacity for specifically predicting your, your predilections towards certain videos, right? So like if you enjoy, like very niche stuff too, people are catapulted into these niches of viewership by these algorithms. And they're actually a way of radicalizing your taste. I know that's a very strong word, but, but into these niches, almost like a doctorate in niche, because that's kind of with, with, with doctorate programs, like, well, I'm gonna specialize in this element of this subject at this his moment in history, at this span of years, it's like, okay, so here's YouTube giving you these kinds of cat videos with this kind of stuff at this time. Enjoy. Yeah. Also, to go back to, to what you're saying about what he could have done if he had uh, kept the memory longer, I mean, interestingly, one of the first things we learn about him is that his claim to fame as a Shakespeare scholar was already that he wrote this book, Shakespeare Chronology. Yeah. And so he's he, in accepting the memory, he's already like uh, obsessed with this idea that knowing the sort of precise sequence of events in Shakespeare's life are very important. But what I think is, is interesting and, and highlighted by the fact that he doesn't recognize the train is that even in theory, if like over time he learned how to write by like li reliving Shakespeare's life in some way, um, and that was he was able to write you know new say Shakespeare quality plays is he would be writing them seemingly um, set in you know Shakespeare's sort of era and and divorced from the sort of present and, and addressing you know the way people were living then the concerns of that moment uh, but but something I, that I thought was interesting is so this is from 1983, but you see in the, the postscript at the end of the story, it's actually just set in uh, 1924. And so Borges is going a bit into the, the past and <laughs> not quite, not quite, you know, setting it into the like the high tech, you know, world that that Cronenberg is doing. And that at the same time, you have the rise of, of cyberpunk and you, you have all these works getting into this really like high tech world. 
And so you have these elements about, you know, memory and media and the phone and such, but it's, 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 there, there is some remove where it's like, hold up, we have like things we haven't really accounted for like decades ago that, you know, right. this, this story is going to sh- sort of shed light on. But if all you have is Shakespeare's memory, um, you do miss out on, on, on all of that, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think you, you have to head out soon. Do you, I guess you, you want to lead into closing comments? Oh, we can chat for a few more. Um, I, oh boy, lots of stuff. Well, I just have to say, I plan on reading a lot more Borges. I mean, I already was familiar with him as an author. You kind of have to be if you want, if you consider yourself a, a lover of, of literature in, in any capacity. But falling down that rabbit hole of some of his stuff, I, I really, one thing that made me appreciate his technical excellence and his capacity for predating a lot of research, or again, like in the 80s when he was writing an earlier course, you know, one of his last stories, as you said, was the one written in 83. But like in the God script, uh, the God's script, I should articulate and enunciate, uh, Borges says, before he cites the sea, the traveler feels a quickening of the blood. What we know now is that when we recognize a visual cue of something that reminds us of something like a memory, our heart rate increases and increased heart rate occurs prior to it. It can induce a memory search in our brain. And so the liter, the scientific spelled out in the literary is something that I find very fascinating. And I would just recommend that listeners check out this book. Someone, someone already wrote Borges and memory encounters with the human brain. I mean, so just just that lets people know, like, this dude really was fascinated in the brain and memory. And so just an excellent story to pair with something that's all about the brain's physical and psychological response to video in the form of videodrome. So couldn't have been much of a better better author to pair there. So that's, that's some further reading. Um, you know, I would, I would say that... Anyone out there, if you like Videodrome, check out more of Cronenberg's work because you really, I mean, if you have a stomach for the gore, I mean, you kind of have to get through that. And, I, you know, I've watched some stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very queasy when it comes to that. Um, so c- closing remarks. Well, I would definitely say that Brian Oblivion's obsession with creating videotapes, sometimes thousands a day, according to his daughter, doesn't that remind you of like influencers and creators who just upload reams and reams of stuff to TikTok or YouTube? Like that hit me. I was like, oh, so he developed a compulsion with the media that he was studying. It began to use him, right? He became a mimetic agent of this stuff. And mimetics is another way that we could really look at video drama. It's like this narrative or these things living through you, right? Meme, like just, there's a lot that's been made of mimetics and a lot of confusion, but really a meme is like an an idea or concept that's transferred and then it, survival of the fittest kind of logic is applied like that, which works propagates. And so you can view video drum to that lens of a sort of uh, we could say metaphor for watching violence, developing tolerance to it and passing that on and regular and, and kind of normalizing that. Um, so let's see anything else I want to hit on. From notes, uh, I think we, we we talked about how both at both of the stories have something to do with trauma, which I I really I really think is important to realize. That's kind of the unique aspect I can can bring to it. Uh, the 
the conversation of heterotopia is something I can just briefly hit on that Foucault, because that's from that salon, the digital unconscious and video drawn beyond. Uh, Alana Thane, who's a really cool professor of like of media studies, discussed that video drama is a heterotopia or a space that has more layers of meaning or relationships to other places than immediately meet the eye. So in other words, heterotopia is a physical representation or approximation of a utopia or a parallel space such as prison that contains undesirable bodies to make a real utopian space possible. So there's a lot of layers there. There's different types. But it seems like, so video dramas create this sort of site where you can act out these horrible things or view them. And so what hit me is in our world now, rather than those coming to us, rather than us having these heterotopias explicitly, like people can watch whatever they want to from their computer, right? And their room becomes that. And I think people are missing in our era of Zoom meetings, their work being a kind of connected place with psychic energy of like uh, networking or, get, or that kind of thing. The physical spaces that represent something is something that for now in our time of COVID has been somewhat lacking. I think that's why people can kind of want some variation, right? And so that hit me that Cronenberg was right in predicting that people would watch more and more desensitized sort of pornographic material, but it would be from a mundane setting and not from like a heterotopia, a crisis heterotopia, which Foucault uh, defines as a, a space like a boarding school or motel room where activities like coming of age or honeymoon take place out of sight. So it's like out of sight, privatized spaces. Well, that just your room or your little space is that now. So YouTubers have a space that's like that and they send it to your room and you watch it. And so I found that very fascinating to consider how much has become abstract now that was predicted to be more physical and visceral. So if you had any thoughts on that, it'd be cool to hear. Um, yeah, I, I also I wanted to follow up on your, your suggestion of reading more Borges' story where you've been posting recently about, um, you know, sort of related somewhat to what we've been talking about, but training your brain where, you know, it, you started small, read 10 pages a day, then read 20 pages yeah. a day, scale yeah. up. Uh, I mean, one of the, the great things besides, you know, that Borges is a, a great writer is he has all of these very short stories. So the one we're talking about now is like something like nine pages or something. And there's Quickly. a lot that are even shorter than that. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, for some people who, who have maybe fallen out of really sustained reading, uh, you know, you could just read through one Borges story and have this like completed reading. And then, you know, the next day do two, you know, and then you, you plow through, you know, this, this whole long book. Um, but, uh, and then so I think, I think he's maybe like a good, you know, person to, to really pick up if you, if you want to try to start reading more. Uh, yeah. as, to, as to this idea of, of these sort of spaces, uh, yeah, so I think it's it's, it's interesting the the because um, it, it starts out in the movie, you know, it's it's this weird blend where he's running a sort of legitimate channel, but then he's also working with a sort of pirated broadcaster, and and so you have this idea, it's it's Civic TV is the the TV you bring to bed with you, yeah, and, and, and so it's. 
it's so even even on being like a normal broadcast, it's imagined as this sort of uh, sort of subversive nighttime sort of uh, television and, and so on. Uh, and and so what we get more and more of is uh, you know that that it, things become sort of widely permeating; they become mobile and such. Uh, there's also the sort of play on words of like the the television you bring to bed with you because it's the idea is then you play out those fantasies actually in the bedroom and besides right. watching them there. Uh, but but um, yeah, the, so so there, there's this dynamic of um, you know that that what starts out as a sort of private viewing then becomes you know. The sort of more public experience and then becomes in some ways reality is shaped by all, all of these things right and and something I thought was interesting at the end of the story is how he doesn't actually seem to really learn uh, the I guess a lesson about focusing on him himself in some ways where what he worries about is he's gonna lose his parents' language and so much of his own memories are caught up in that and so he's going to lose his sanity. Right. And so what he decides is like, well, to replace Shakespeare's memory, I guess I'll just become a William Blake scholar and I'll be know everything there is to know about William Blake and I'll fill my mind with William Blake and then that will be sort of the solution. Uh, but, but, you know, there, there's... He sort of loses... Uh, any sort of expectation of establishing his own sort of private identity, private spaces, everything is about connecting outward to others and bringing in things to fill in his reality. Uh, that 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 I think is is also what is what is going on in some interesting ways in the movies. So, so Brian Oblivion sets up this homeless shelter where everyone gets a little pod with a TV and oh, this yeah. idea, Ray. the idea yeah. that, you know, by watching television, they'll be re immersed into society. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and so there, there's the way in which there's a psychological level of, you know, media shapes you, which, you know, I think at this point is very not profound, but, but it's, but, and then there's also the, the the how much how central it is that like you have to watch television and you have to keep up with all these things in order right. to be part of society and so so what uh max sort of preys on in his business is uh that if people are watching this more and more they're going to need more and more new content and so he's pushing things in new directions uh but what it will be interesting to ex continue to explore further is, you know, this sort of really high quality content in terms of these like really distinct visions. Um, and so, so it's, it's, it's great to explore Cronenberg's vision with Videodrome here and to think about Borges and, and you know, particularly this, this very late Borges separate from uh, you know, the, the 1940s, uh, where a lot of his earlier stuff is from, but right. all of a sudden 
in this moment of you know the, the rise of cyberpunk and the, the things like Videodrome, is he's still putting out the sort of original ideas in line with a lot of other things, but it's really sort of a very interesting sort of look into what it means to study things and to read things and to like become someone understood who understands yourself in relationship to whether it's Shakespeare or Videodrome or uh, even the, the sort of like radio broadcast therapy and, and what that what yeah. that does. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you get, so yeah, reading 10 pages a day, like that's been increasing. That's just shaping. That's behavioral, like that's behavioral therapy 101, like getting your foot in the door, doing something, passing under resistance, being able to, to basically debate yourself into making the change that you want to see. So how, what is the smallest, most absurd level at which you can get back into reading, right? People, people will sometimes say, well, I want to read 50 pages a day. Will, will you do that? Well, I want to, and, I, and I, I think I should, okay, but that's not the question. Can you right now, or do you think that you would? Well, maybe not, okay, so can you do 10? Oh, sure, okay. It's almost like tapping into human systems of, of resistance in your own brain and overcoming it is the key to getting rid of procrastination, right? So it's like read a small number of pages and then cut yourself off when it's getting good. It's like, no, I want to keep reading. It's like, good, okay, then do it. And now you've reversed procrastination. And so that's kind of where I was going with those tweets and those posts, but getting back into like, yeah, the cathode ray mission in the movie where people are reintroducing to society through television. You know, it's like, eat your gruel, watch your mind numbing stuff and have a conversation. Watch your reality TV. I'm, I listen, I've watched reality TV, right? I've eaten from the dumpster of ideology, the same as the rest of us to, to, to uh, mime and to repeat Zizek lovingly. Like, Every day I'm eating from the dumpster of ideology, right? Like I get it. I understand it. Um, and it's that predates like the must see TV phenomenon by only a few years, because that would come to pass as like, you know, with full house and family matters, it's like water cooler TV, right? If you can't talk at the water cooler about TV, what are you going to discuss? Well, I could ask my neighbor or my coworker about his life. No, don't do that. Ask about Urkel and the characters on Full House, you moron. Like, oh, okay. So that becomes sort of the way, like, yeah, the uncivilized person who can't talk about whatever, like Maud or All in the Family needs to be, you know, have their eyes clockwork oranged at the cathode ray mission to integrate into society. And it's like, mm, okay. So it's like a mimetic conditioning camp in many ways. Like, get on the same level with everyone else who's talking about these shows. I think that's probably Cronenberg's most over the head, over the, the top, you know, brick in the face uh, metaphor in the movie actually is not even like the visceral stuff, but the fact that there's an entire building dedicated to like a methadone clinic for TV and memes, right? For memetics. Like you need to be on this, the same page here with society and get civilized. It's like, and, and so, you know, the difference between that being one way and then the radio show being two ways pretty clear. But even with the radio show, you got to keep it entertaining, right? So some of those call-in shows, it's like, it's entertainment first and foremost, and then it's help second most. Now, not always. I think there's some pretty ethical radio doctors and radio personalities. I can't speak completely to Dr. Ruth and Laura as people. I know growing up, I would, I would hear Dr. Laura, and she would be very to the point with a lot of 
callers. And again, I'm not making a moralistic comment on that either way. I'm saying it just came across like, well, you need to do this for your husband. You need to do that. I got to go. Bye. And so again, I think it was very, it was supposed to be that. That's what the show was argued at. I mean, it wasn't, people knew what they were getting into, but it, it is a sort of self-help as entertainment. The fact that Cronenberg put a character in like that, I think was very intelligent because there's different forms of media addiction or involvement. And it can be the kind where you get visceral gore stuff in your face, or it can be the kind where you really want to learn just what you can do to grow and collect that sort of self-help stuff. But it's like, you got to apply it too, right? Like your only knowledge is only useful to you to grow if you apply it. So anyway, that's my tangent on that. But I, I, I really enjoy <laughs> the cathode ray mission is a part of the movie that really speaks to me because I think it's a, it's very, it, it's, like if you've ever spoken to somebody and they don't know television, they just didn't grow up watching TV or anything like that. It's like, you can still find something pretty cool to talk to them about and arguably even cooler, but the movie makes it to be like, and some, some people will say, well, you really need to know that stuff and talk about it. Right. And I'm not even going to get specific with the kind of shows people do that with. Now you can fill in the gaps, but I mean, there's a, there, there are quite a few where it's like hashtag, you know such and such tv show okay right yeah and and so with the story you know there, there's in this wider literary context you know the, there something i thought about is you know going back into the 60s you have something like uh do androids dream of electric sheep which has this idea in a technological sense of you know androids and you upload memories into them and, and what does that do in terms of creating like a something of a person Right. Uh, and then a few years before this Shakespeare's memory, you have uh, William Gibson writes Johnny Mnemonic, where he's, he's a mnemonic courier. They upload memories into his head and yeah. sort of overriding his own. And he's, he's, he's carrying this around and, and such. But there's something still very striking in Borges' vision here in 1983. And, and I think what you uh, have articulated very well is is one is his understanding of how memory works is, is very thorough and, and sort of insightful and and then also the the dynamic of trauma in the way in which the this sort of uh things are passed on person to person is is very interesting where it's not just the sort of in johnny mnemonic it's this business deal i'll pay you to carry this memory okay and then you know, there's a danger to being caught up in the Yakuza, whatever, and then it creates a sort of excitement, uh, you know, sort of action-y story. Uh, but, right. but, but the, 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 the trauma of having this burden and then needing to pass it on to someone else. I was, I was also reminded of uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's uh, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, where the, the guy is, is cursed to... to cursed and then he has to go and like pass on the story and so he goes to yeah. like, the wedding and he's like shaking the guy and it's like I, I have to tell you this story uh and 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 I think that you know there might be something there because this whole um collection that this was published in Shakespeare's memory there, there's so much British romanticism going on there's another story that starts with Will and Blake's tiger uh in this story and some others he's talking about Thomas de Quincey who's this sort of British romantic era uh, essayist and 
and then there, there's also another essayist, Charles Lamb from the era, who's coming up in the sort of starting story of the collection. Uh, right. So I think maybe maybe there is something in particular to that that Coleridge point, but but there's that dynamic of like, you know, it's it's not just about how we inherit memories and we're, we're a collection of memories, but actually we're more than memories because there's also understanding and will and all these things. But but the dynamic of what memories get passed around and why, and yeah. and, and the psychology of that is, is in some ways you know quite alarming and something to really sort of take note on. And so both Cronenberg and, and Borges here are really like stopping and looking at that dynamic of you know, what, what are the desires and the drives that are pushing this reproduction of ideas and media? Uh, and, and how does that, how that happens and why? And so it's really interesting to go back to this moment of, of early 1983 and look at what these two great visionaries are doing. And so, so, thank, and, and, and so thank you, for, you know, for coming on and, and informing, you know, that, that rich psychological element of, of of how this is all working this context absolutely it was a pleasure thank you for having me on i uh i always enjoy analyzing horror or or, or any sort of um literature media whatever through that lens of what we know about the neuroscience of trauma um you know knowledge as curse or traumatic knowledge that which jolts you emotionally and is encoded richer is just a strand throughout literature at, at such a huge enormous level that to to neglect it really leaves us with a a less with with a shallow heuristic so i i definitely enjoyed it the time flew by um so i i'm really excited to see what you do with this whole series of double vision because there's so much potential um it's like very cool stuff going on so yeah thank, thank you uh, and maybe we'll, we'll plan another episode later on figure, figure out a, another interesting pairing figure out you know something else to dive into oh absolutely uh, so thanks for coming on and also you know thanks everyone for for listening and so now this is uploaded into you and good luck <laughs> with that yes that's hilarious yeah here <laughs> wisdom take it or leave it um,